0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. You may know me from the website longform.org. Maybe you could each identify yourselves also.
2: Uh, My name is Max Linsky. I also work on the website longform.org with you. My name is Evan Ratliff. I am a freelance journalist and the author of a book called The Mastermind. I was formerly the editor-in-chief of The Atavist magazine. Aaron, thanks for uh, reintroducing us to the audience.
0: Well, we realized that we, for like three or four years, we forgot to identify (laughs) ourselves. So sorry for our lapse. It's been identified. You may hear us identifying ourselves at the top of programs. Don't be alarmed. Uh, Great show for you this week. I think this is our penultimate episode of 2020. I talked to Neilai Patel, who is the longtime editor of The Verge, and uh Recently, became the host of the Decoder podcast. Um, someone whose work I have enjoyed for many years and uh, has has been around uh, publishing on the internet for quite a while.
2: The latest installment in um, Aaron talks to people from the uh, sort of tech media world, which is one of my favorite strains of conversation over the years on the long form podcast. I
0: apologize to the audience, but at least uh, I'm not subjecting you to my real interest
2: level in cryptocurrencies. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of uh, things we can subject you to, the longform.org best of the year is going to be up tomorrow. Tomorrow, I say, Aaron. That's a bold prediction. I'm going to finish this thing. We're we're, we're basically there. All of our um, editors who work on Longform have pitched in, submitted their picks of the year. Uh, And if you are looking for something to read over the holiday break, go to longform.org tomorrow. There will be many, many of the best articles of the year right there for you to read.
0: I'm willing to spoil one winner. The best sponsor of the year is MailChimp. They make this
2: show possible thanks to them. And now here's Aaron with Nilay Patel.
0: Welcome, Nilay Patel.
3: Thanks for having me. This is uh, quite an honor.
0: I always enjoy having a uh, fellow podcaster on the show. Uh, You are the editor-in-chief of The Verge and fairly newly the host of the Decoder podcast. What are we, about a month in?
3: Yeah, we're about a month in on Decoder, which is uh, my new podcast, and I've been hosting the Vergecast, which is The Verge's chat show about tech news uh, for almost 10 years now. We've been going on that show for a long time. But Decoder is the new one. It is a relaunched version of
0: Recode Decode that Kara Swisher hosted for a long time. So it's a new project, but I'm pretty excited about it. What's it like inheriting an audience like that? I feel like I, I don't know a lot of people who have people listening to their podcast, but they might have subscribed when they weren't the host.
3: Yeah, it's been a fun challenge. I was excited to do it. It's not easy to think that you've got to follow in Kara Swisher's footsteps. But I think inheriting her audience, just in terms of building a show, it's a unique challenge because we want to grow. So we have to go find new people. I don't want to irritate everybody who's already there, but we can't just do the same thing as she was doing if we want to grow. So we're, we're trying to strike the right balance of delivering interviews and insight and all the stuff that Kara was doing to the audience that liked it while still trying to expand and go find some new folks to make sure we grow the show and we're on a good trajectory. So we have a good balance. Just naturally, I have different interests than Kara. I'm definitely more focused on on tech stuff, like the minutia of tech. So I think that's one opportunity. And then we're trying to grow into the general business category, because I look at the landscape of general business podcasts. It's much bigger in terms of audience size. But a lot of those shows aren't very critical, and I think that's a big opportunity for us.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, what do you think a CEO can and will say on a show like this that is interesting? What are the like threads that people are willing to talk about that you find like the most important right now?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. My approach has been to make CEOs talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. I think all too often we expect every executive at every company to stand for the whole company and to own every decision of the entire company and to only talk about the last mistake they made and how they're going to fix it. I'm not saying that's wrong at all. The Verge does it a lot as an editorial organization. But I think on an hour-long interview show, you have the opportunity, and I I try to start every interview this way, by asking people how they make decisions to understand their their longer-term framework of decision-making, which is catnip, I think, for executives at a certain level because they mm-hmm. have thought about it. Anybody who's succeeded in business or or life at that level has had to develop a system to operate. And so that's where I've been starting. Again, we're a month in. It might be the mm-hmm. wrong approach, but it's where I've wanted to start because I'd rather understand that and then say, okay, you made this decision. I don't think it fits into your framework. And see where that conversation goes as opposed to coming in and saying, I think you're wrong. Um, it's easier to get people to talk about themselves and then contextualize the decisions that are interesting for the companies they run.
0: How one-to-one do you think that maps? Like, I think this becomes the general approach and reporting about the arts where you're writing a profile of an artist. You expect that on some level with at least the right details, you can make their life – seem to be the fuel for their art. Do you feel like the personal stories of CEOs can tell the story of how these big decisions are made at tech companies and and I guess what do you feel like the relationship sort of between the personal and the professional is? Yeah, mostly I think it has no relationship
3: and when I read the reporting, it tries to connect the two. And again, we have done it too, so I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. But we only get the personal details that people want to share that illuminate the point they're trying to make. So a very common one is every time a device is launched, we get photos of some executive's kids, and they, they say, my kid made a great movie using this new feature of that," and It's like, I don't believe you. Um, Yeah. Where I do think the answer is yes, the personal lives connect with the business is that they are just people. And I think we often take for granted the fact that companies are run by people with all of the same problems as everybody else. And so decisions get made rashly. Decisions get made on a whim. Decisions are 50-50 trade-offs and they flipped a coin. And I think that part of, yep, you're just a person. And I one of the approach The Verge has always taken is to not take it too seriously, is to say, we know you're just a, a bunch of people and you just made some choices. So I think the narrative that comes out of biography to me is it's interesting. I think people always find each other's biographies interesting. I don't think it tells a story of how companies make decisions, but I think the fact that, yep, they're just people and they are as rash and as confused as everybody else.
0: Uh, that is very illuminating. I read uh, Casey Newton's newsletter. He's been on this show, and he was, of course, with The Verge for many years, has now gone solo. But I would credit his reporting in The Verge about content moderation being, a lot, in a way, sort of the uh, canary in the coal mine for me, realizing that the next frontier of conflict in the tech industry was going to be internally within the stats of these companies. How do you think about that story? Sort of the story of, hey, is everyone going to keep working at Facebook?
3: Yeah, I think that story touches on almost everything The Verge does. And, you know, Casey did amazing work on those moderation stories, and I'm excited for him at Platformer. Like, that was uh, one sort of culmination and inflection point of all of the work we had been doing for a long time. I think the next inflection point is what you're talking about, which is well, if you're at Facebook, you make a lot of money. You're good at your job, yeah. you're, you're technically skilled, and you're mad at the product you're making. Where are you going to go? And that is one very specific kind of labor story. There's a story of unrest inside of the company. You expand the aperture a little bit and you see, oh, these companies are really big. And they might be too big. And the inability of the workforce to move around and to switch jobs when they're unhappy and to express their preferences in the job market might be having a, a horrible effect on society as a whole because if all your best people are leaving because your product is bad, you might fix your product a little bit faster than if we're yelling at you about labels on the algorithm or whatever. And I, that to me is – it's the bigger part of the story. We've just seen so much consolidation in the tech industry. It's the, the actual workers inside the companies who are fastest to affect change because if they go, these companies fall apart. And the problem is there's not a lot of places for them to go. So it it all just comes full circle to me that the consolidation of the industry, the size of these companies, the lack of direct competition makes it really hard for that kind of worker unrest to make the direct immediate change that you would expect.
0: I think I was prepared for the verge to be critical of large tech companies. What I didn't see coming was workers at large uh, tech companies um, who are the sources for stories within publications like The Verge, sort of using the technology press to speak out from within their own companies?
3: I mean, we're marks, right? I mean, I think we're, I think the tech press is doing a good job right now, but these companies have been so secretive for so long. They do not talk. They barely leak. When they leak, it is always on the business side or on the product feature side. It is rarely about how the company is actually going.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so when those doors opened, I think you see a generation of tech reporters that has wanted stories like this for over a decade. And they're just receptive to it because finally we see what the debate inside the company is actually like. And so, you know, I say we're marks. I'm being a little facetious. Like there was a vacuum of that story. And I think the industry knew it. I think these people have wanted to talk to the press for a long time, and they were able to fill the vacuum. The comparison Mm -hmm. I make uh, would be to politics, right? There's no shortage of politics reporting in this country, and it's because there's two teams. that hate each other. They hate their own parties, and they all talk all the time. That is not how the tech industry has worked, but I think this is the beginning of that where the management of the organizations, there's a labor of the organizations. They don't necessarily align, and I think Both sides are starting to try to make their case publicly in order to gain leverage.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of the devices that that industry produced have also led to a culture where stopping leaking is almost impossible. I mean, we're not just talking about people saying what Zuckerberg said in his internal speech, talking about like recordings coming out within an hour in a lot of these things like and not even just Facebook, smaller companies, too. It's very, very difficult, it seems like, to keep information in the bag right now.
3: Especially because everyone's remote. Uh, and yes. this is something we thought about a lot. You know, Casey did a, a story with a lot of recordings out of Facebook, and we spent some time debating how will we publish this audio. We don't know mm-hmm. what Facebook's security measures are. We know it's easier to get the audio than ever because everyone's at home. But have they watermarked the audio? Is it labeled in some way? Like, are we going to put our sources at risk? So. It, There's a real balance there. Everyone's at home. Everyone can just hold an iPhone up to their laptop and record the all hands. But they're also less bought into the mission of the company. They're less bought into their executives being good leaders. They're more inclined to record the stuff. And then the companies themselves are as fearful as ever. And everyone as journalists has to be careful that the technology to blow your sources, even though they're just holding up a phone to a laptop, still very much. It's a feature in Zoom. You can just turn it on. Your organization can turn it on in Zoom to watermark all the audio and identify all the recordings.
0: I did not know that. So in addition to covering tech companies during the pandemic, you are the editor-in-chief of uh, a company that's uh, owned by Vox. What's it been like for you running a company like yours during a pandemic?
3: Difficult. So, you know, Vox Media is the parent company. I'm always oh, reminded sorry, to be sorry, not vox.com. Vox Media is the parent company and it owns all the brands. So New York Mag and The Verge and Eater and then Vox is the general news brand over there, Vox.com.
0: Which you were formerly with for a period before coming back to The Verge. Kirk. When
3: when they were launching it I was their managing editor, mostly because launching a thing is hard and I just been through it with The Verge, so I wasn't quite as rattled by the obvious problems that occur because I had a little bit of experience. But after that, I came back and I was the editor-in-chief of The Verge. So, you know, it's been difficult. All of our brands are in different places. The Verge, you know, we all made cuts. The Verge made cuts. I was heartbroken about some of the decisions we had to make. Some of my favorite people and some of the favorite things that we cover, we just had to stop doing for a minute. But I think coming out of this year, we have managed to refocus. It feels like the advertising market has come back a little bit. It feels like the verge is on strong footing. And then most importantly to me, the audience has been there, right? People are at home. They're using the internet more. There's an absolute whole incredible information. And we've been there to provide it. And my team has done just an extraordinary job meeting the moment. So that has been extremely rewarding, even as the business climate for the larger company has been kind of rocky.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word, how did you come to be someone who had experience launching a company it's sort of inevitable um (laughs)
3: so i was in college like any good kid i thought i was gonna be a doctor and then i took my first pre-law class and napster came out at the same time this is a real story and i realized that all I really cared about was copyright law, which is horrible, like, it, it just makes me sound incredibly boring. And so I ended up in law school to be a copyright lawyer, I was a copyright lawyer, and I realized I truly hated it. I hated it so much, because I was just doing other people's paperwork. And I always described it like I was talking through the glass to people. I was like, they would come to me and they would talk to me through the glass about the cool things they were doing, and I would do their paperwork and they would go away. And I was never able to go on the other side of the glass and do the cool thing.
0: I got to pause you. I got to pause you for a second. I, I want to understand the Napster thing. So Napster comes out and you do pre-law and you're like, I got to be involved in copyright law. Are you thinking I'm going to sue people for copyright law or I'm going to protect Napster or like what was your orientation towards the copyright law and Napster and your potential future at that point?
3: Oh, I definitely thought that the RIAA and the music industry – was tamping down on a revolution in music. And I had mm-hmm. always been a little punk rock brat. You know, the cassette tapes for the backside of it from the Dead Kennedys would say, this side left intentionally blank so you can steal music. Like, that's where my inclination mm-hmm. was. And I I fell deep into a hole of what it means for a big company to say they own culture and a big company to tell teenagers what they could and couldn't do with music. It's funny, over the course of my career, I have started to extremely understand why they were so afraid, because their industry did get decimated. And I don't think that your average mid-sized artist is doing as well now as they were in the pre-Napster era, while the stars are getting richer and richer and doing more kinds of products. I don't think that anyone online is happy that for one class of creators, it feels like big companies can just steal their work And big companies are constantly suing like fanfic authors. Like, I don't know that it's worked out, but that's, I felt it early. And I was very much on the side of go away. Like, I don't care about your copyright law. And so when I actually ended up becoming a lawyer, my first job was at a very tiny law firm in Chicago. And the woman who was running it, she was defending kids who had been sued by the recording industry for using Kazaa in their dorm rooms at college. And I just remember remember this era well, (laughs) we would tell them to take a semester off of college and work in the pizza joint to pay their settlements. And that it just, it really like hit me in that moment. Like, oh, this is the real consequence of this.
0: I was very much active during the same era. I remember really my first experience with the idea of networking was, I think it was Kazaa where you could basically like log on and see like everyone in your dorm, like what was in their folders. And then you could sort of drag and drop across the folders. And for me, this was like a formative era that really kind of got me interested in computers. But I'm also involved a little bit in the music industry through this band that I'm a part of. And people are sort of shocked that anyone who has profited from music would also have this sort of nostalgic and positive relationship with the early history of piracy. Yeah, it's really tough. You know, when I was in college, I was in a band and
3: the tech didn't exist. And I definitely would burn CDs to my friends and try to sell them for two bucks at shows. Like the thing that was happening there was the physical scarcity of the the medium let you sell the culture. You could say this song is worth $2. This album of medium, well-recorded music from the dorm room basement is worth $3, it only bore a relation to the scarcity of the physical object because you couldn't get it any other way. We've eliminated that scarcity with the internet. And now the question is, how much should it cost to listen to a song once on Spotify? That is, I think, an impossible question to answer. If you ask Spotify, then it's too high and they're paying, what, 0.1 0.1 cent a song listen or 0.15 cent a song listen maybe less the artists are all saying that's way too low i, I was looking at a richard marx tweet of all things and he was saying 96 million streams of richard marx songs on spotify and so like, how much does that make you and he's like like a thousand dollars
0: i don't is that the right ratio i have no that, idea see, these are the kind of things also where it's like that is not also my like Those are definitely different rates than like how much I've made off of Spotify. These stories are like wrapped in so many like different layers of like what like your contract is. And and then these labels have also like cut different deals with Spotify, I believe. I'm not positive if that's true.
3: Yeah, and and so the back end of the music industry it, it bears no relationship to the culture because we've disaggregated it off of the physical product. Yes. To me, that is one of the biggest cultural stories of all time. And it is true for video. It is true for newspapers. It is true for mag like any kind of culture you can think of. The lack of physical scarcity has radically revalued the product. And so I, you know we're in the middle right now. There's a, a comment period on rewriting the copyright law in the United States. There's a huge fight going on about how to make sure we revalue the thing. To me, when I look at the larger story of the tech industry, it's we don't value culture appropriately, but we also don't value the fact that people will just make it for free regardless of whether they get paid for it. And that is, I think, a one of the most dynamic and interesting tensions of all of culture that has only been enabled by technology. It is cheaper and easier to make culture than ever before because of the tools that you have. And that means there's a flood of it. And just naturally, that means... Right there's more supply than there can ever be demand. The prices will fall, but you don't want that to happen because you want to incentivize the good stuff. And I, I, I could, I could talk about this for the rest of the hour if you'd like me to. Because I just feel
0: it is to me it is the only story. I would gladly talk for the whole hour with you, but I want to actually go back to you as a young copyright lawyer. <laughs> um, you're doing some boring, boring stuff. You see. Some of these people who hire me are doing things that are a lot more interesting than what I'm doing.
3: Yeah, and I was just a total gearhead too. I shouldn't discount that. So I saw that a site called Engadget was hiring bloggers. I wrote them a letter, an email, an application, and I said, you guys suck at writing my copyright law. Because at that time, remember, the hottest gadget in the world was the iPod. Yeah, There were constant discussions about how you get music on the iPod, how you get music off, whether you should put DRM and all the windows songs. so they can't be used on iPod. It was all there in primitive, primitive form, but everyone was getting it wrong all the time. So I wrote them this email said, I can do this. But you're also getting this wrong. I happen to be a copyright lawyer. They hired me at $12 a post, uh, which is not a lot of money. The big um, time. And eventually I got a raise to $14 a post, which was a big deal. And I used to stand in my shower every morning in calculate how many posts I would have to write to quit being a lawyer because I I loved it so much. I loved being in it. We were Engadget. We had a great competitor in Gizmodo. I loved competing against Gizmodo. It was a one-to-one competition to see who could post the news about the next biggest SD card fastest, right? And we we were in it. And the competitors we had at Gizmodo then are, they're off doing great things. It was just a, a very formative moment for a class of writers in technology to be steeped in the details have to be right because the audience would torch us if we got anything wrong and have to be fast. And so I loved it. So I eventually settled on I had to write between 14 and 15 posts a day to quit my job. And I got there and I was cranking and then one thing led to the other. I was promoted, I was managing at Irving Gadget and we it turned out we worked for AOL, uh, which is I think a historically mismanaged company now. I don't think it's shocking of me to say that at this point in time. And we asked them for more money to grow, to hire some of our people full-time. We had all these visions of how we could be even bigger and more important, and they, they said no. And I think right then, Josh Topolsky, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, he went out, he found Jim Magoff, who's the CEO of Vox Media, and Marty, our president, and we were off and running to make The Verge because we knew what we wanted. And when I say it was inevitable that we would start a thing, I think our collective, there are 12 of us, our collective sense of what we wanted was so strong that inside of a company like AOL, it was never gonna happen.
0: What were the challenges of realizing that vision that you could see ahead of you when you were leaving AOL?
3: Well, one, the entire market for how people consume the media changed. So we launched The Verge in 2011. We launched The Verge when the iPhone 5 was coming out, or something like that. The whole world hadn't shifted to reading on their phones. And so if you look at the first version of The Verge, it was a beautiful desktop website. It is an app. It just had all these features. It was laid out to bring the print experience to the desktop. I look at screenshots of it all the time, because I'm like, man, this was awesome. But then over the course of time, all consumption moved to phones. And we barely, we had an app, but we barely had. It was, we just weren't built that way. Um, So that idea that we would be this all-encompassing destination for people as a desktop homepage has waxed and waned over the years. I still think we have a beautiful desktop homepage. We have a very loyal audience that hits us on the desktop. But we've had to get very good at atomizing our stories to travel across all the other distribution channels that have existed while not losing our character. And I think when you're new, it is so easy to lose your character because you will just chase success. You will chase whatever the numbers tell you. And so we've been very adamant to sort of bracket what the numbers are telling us because the numbers are inherently only backwards looking, right? They will only tell you what happened in the past. They can never tell you what's gonna happen in the future. So we, we're good at that. We've built I think, industry leading capability at understanding what our audience is doing, but we're very careful to say, we actually have to invent the future.
0: I think about how I consume technology media today and, you know, I feel like I get Dieter's newsletter. I was a longtime reader of Casey's newsletter, which I often linked to Verge stories, but I feel like I don't like just go like Verge.com go very often, like as things sort of fracture in that way. And I, I think it is sort of safe to say that we're both past the like just going to websites era and past the like everything kind of runs through social media era in going into whatever the next era is like, how do you think about your audience when it's coming all these different ways? It might be someone who just gets you on your podcast and doesn't even ever go on the site.
3: Yeah. I think this is the hardest problem in media and It's a challenge to differentiate yourself in every place because you don't have the you don't have the bundle of other stuff that indicates the taste of your publication. You just have one shot in a Twitter feed or whatever. So for us, one, we think the quality of our journalism and the tone of our journalism carries. It's probably not as important as we think it is the, the whole audience, but we emphasize it a lot that we actually have to be buttoned up, we have to be fast, we have to be smart, all those things. We have to be right. That's the first thing. And then if you look at what we put around those atomic units of journalism, we invest a lot into photography. We invest a lot into design. We invest hilariously into our pull quotes and our teasers on on the homepage because we know that that stuff travels visually in a way that no block of text ever will. So we have a great photography editor who she spends a lot of time thinking about how our photos should look. And what, when you see a verge photo, it should, you should connect that to something you've seen before and actually connect to all the qualities. There's a reason our pull quotes are magenta, right? They're hot pink. Cause we want people to know what they are. We want people to see them and and react to them. So there's a lot of thoughtfulness in the design that is supposed to at least across the universe of things you're looking at be source indicators for the verge itself.
0: For uh, people who listen to this show, I feel like uh, of that big mix of stuff you do, the most interesting is the investigative stuff. Like you did a thing on Foxconn last year, these sort of empty Foxconn factories. There's a pretty deep tradition of long-form magazine-style writing at The Verge. What, like, what role does that play in the mix? Why put the money out to do stories like that when I assume that you get potentially greater traffic on something like a review of uh, the new MacBook Air that can be done from home with a photographer and a videographer? And uh, that's an assumption in its own right. Maybe I should ask that as a question instead of a statement. <laughs> what, what's the role of that stuff? And, and what's its value? How do you justify it? And, and where do you see it going?
3: Yeah. So we launched You know, the first day The Verge came into the world. We had a magazine-style feature on the site. So it's part of our DNA. That story is great, by the way. It was about people building bunkers out of decommissioned missile silos. I remember that. Ten years later, it, is, it still holds up. It feels more relevant than ever in some ways. Um So it's been there in just our mix of stories from the beginning. Again, we were new. So how we've constructed our teams, how we invest on stuff has certainly changed over time. We've arrived at a pretty comfortable structure now. It's been 10 years. We don't know what our structure looks like. We're doing something wrong. And where I'm at with it is, one, some of these stories are just insanely complicated. And if we aren't doing them at our scale and with our insight, we're – we're just doing a disservice to our audience. Complicated technically. I mean, They require a level of insight into the industry that only beat reporters can really bring to it. Second, you ask about the relationship to reviews and, and features. And you think it's cheap to make a review. It's very expensive to make a Verge review. But that traffic mm. mix over time is really a long tail traffic, right? People search for that over time. And so that has a steady drumbeat of traffic. And so we've been able to build a floor of audience that is constantly on the site, that is constantly looking at us, that is values our brand because we have expertise. And then we're able to use that audience to say, we wanna have impact over here. And so the scale allows you to have the impact and the impact allows you to further and further grow your scale. So you take a story like Foxconn, it's crazy to me that we were the only outlet that chased that story as hard as we did. But it's because fundamentally it's about an LCD factory And we were like, are you really gonna build LCDs in the middle of Wisconsin? And so we just kept hammering at it for two years. And it's very much Josh has a story and he put every ounce of himself into it. But underlying it all was our deep sense that LCD screens are really important. Everything else we do has one of these screens on it. And if we can make that connection to the audience that cares about screens and say, is there really gonna be an LCD factory in this place? This is a crazy promise. At the end, when there's the big feature, we're not hammering people over the head with this is a tech story. We're saying this is just an incredible story about the promise of the American dream in the middle of America being smoke and mirrors. And I, that mix of very high-minded investigations and very tactical
0: service journalism is this good value for the dollar I think has served us really well. This is totally anecdotal, but uh, just from working on long form over the years, I feel like your competition has dropped like flies. There are less people who could potentially commission a story about LCD screens and Foxconn, other than like the sort of biggest entrenched players, like Wired Business Week, the number of sort of smaller independent publishers doing those kind of investigative stories seems smaller. How do you feel like that world has evolved over the last few years? It has definitely gotten smaller and worse.
3: And I, I think that's a tragedy. The Fox story again, to me is just an incredible example of that. Every alt weekly in Wisconsin should have gotten that story before we did. The big newspapers in Wisconsin should have gotten that story before we did. We were always worried that we were going to get scooped. And it You know, I remember Josh saying, it doesn't seem like anyone else is on the story. My sources aren't talking about anybody else talking to them. That hollowing out of journalism across the country is a tragedy. You know, I started out by saying Gizmodo was my competitor. It made me better. It made us better because we were in a daily minute-to-minute competition with other great reporters who I respected. And I think their headline choices were always really great, but I respected them. Just that hollowing out of journalism, that sense that they're we don't have a great competitor. And you know, Wired is a great competitor. And to some extent, like we compete with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. They're great competitors. I think Insider is growing a lot. They're doing a lot of great investigative journalism. Like they just made a big hire. I think Bloomberg Business Week has always been our model in terms of not taking it too seriously, but still doing incredible reporting. Yeah, those are great competitors. But that huge ecosystem of media all focused on things that were important and, and being able to cover the, the entire shape of the culture and the economy it has definitely gotten smaller. I, I I can't say it's anything else but a tragedy.
0: How do you divvy up your time amongst all these potential things? Like, what does it mean to be running a company where the boss uh, also has a pretty high-volume podcast? <laughs> How do you manage uh, your responsibilities? Yeah, when I was doing
3: CEO interviews on the Vergecast before we start a decoder. I asked every executive I talked to, how do you manage your time? When do you actually work? Because I just needed to know. Uh, I don't know that I'm great at it. I am very lucky that I have in just an incredible team that I have just an endless amount of trust in. I think for any leader in an organization, that is the most luxurious thing that you can feel. They will make some decisions. I might disagree with them, but they're not going to blow it. And on balance, they're going to make the correct decisions. I won't have anything to say. I'm luckier than than any editor-in-chief that I know because of that. Second, I think the balance between being the person in front making the stuff and the editor-in-chief managing stuff is really difficult. I try to block out my time, so I'm only doing one thing at once, and I actually have to have different spaces for the work. They're not so far away from each other, but I have my old iMac that I'm talking into right now, this is where I podcast. This is where I write. This is like my creative space. And then just a few feet over there is a laptop connected to a TV and a camera that I use for Zoom and meetings. And that's physically my management space. And I need to literally move myself around the way that I moved myself around in the office to change those head spaces. It's very tactical, I know, but it has made a big difference for me. And then on top of that, I really think this is true because of what we do it is important for me to be in the mix. And I I mean that in terms of I need to hold the phones. I need to use the products. I need to have a point of view on how the stuff works. And if I'm not there doing the same work as the other reviewers and journalists, I, I think my credibility to lead the organization actually diminishes. So I don't do all of it. But if I don't know what it takes to review a phone in 2020, then my ability to help lead us into what the next generation of those things looks like goes down. And so I want to make sure I'm always still making things. I think it's really, really important for the, the leaders of organizations to understand how their products are made. And I really also think our reviews program is a unique source of power and credibility for the verge. There are not a lot of other categories of journalism where at the end of the day, you can say, look, Apple, we added up everything you've said. We've added up the regulatory pressure you're under. We've added up the competitive pressure you're under. We're holding your phone that you made in response to all of those things. And we gave it a nine. Like you don't do that in politics. You don't, it's just a very unique blend of culture, politics, and product that we get to participate in. And I think it's important for me as the leader of the
0: organization to actually do that work. I'm curious about your emotions around this whole world like projecting yourself back as the like gotta write 15 posts today on Engadget guy who has a side hobby of being really into all this stuff we've kind of seen what enthusiasm for technology has wrought I guess I'm curious like how you think about all this stuff has changed over time and and whether there's feelings of regret creep in in any way
3: Every now and again, I'm like, oh, phones are a mistake.
0: Yeah. It's hard
3: not to feel that way. Look at our society. Like the instant ability, unmanaged ability for people to say horrible things to each other because of phones is tearing our culture apart. It just is. And so sometimes I'm like, man, I wish our headline had been iPhone released. It's a mistake. You can't not. But I think there's a really important flip side to that. And I try really hard to stay on the other side all the time, which is also a bunch of teenagers are able to create culture at a scale that has never been possible before. Also, a bunch of marginalized communities are able to speak with coordinated voices and make change very rapidly. And that balance, I don't think we've quite understood. And I don't think we've quite understood how to weight the good things against the obviously horrible things. So I just don't want to discount it. And I, I try really – I personally try really hard to not fall into despair. I assure you I fall into despair. The second thing I think – and this has always been my, my little tagline at The Verge, my little internal tagline. Fundamentally, what The Verge sells to people is like hope. Because we, the story of technology and science is the story of human effort and progress. And that manifests itself in huge ways. We were able to develop three vaccines in a year. That's incredible. It's just, incre- it's just unprecedented. It manifests itself in super small ways. The phones get thinner every year, and the screens get bigger, and the networks get faster. All that stuff is really hard. And I... I think we take that stuff absolutely for granted. We just take it for granted that Apple already has the next iPhone in manufacturing development. And next year, they're going to have another one and it will be slightly better and they will make a billion of them. That stuff is really hard. It has costs, it has downside, it has risk, but they do it every year and it makes a tangible impact on the world. So yeah, every now and again, I'm like, fucking phones are a mistake. And then I look at the wealth of effort and I look at the wealth of upside. And I think finding that balance is where The Verge has been successful because we reward the effort and that rewarding of the effort validates it when we say, this is a mistake.
0: Do you follow the vaccine story? Is like the story of the creation of the vaccine a story The Verge would cover?
3: Uh, we have an incredible science desk. So just a broad sense of how we're structured. We're structured into desks. We have a tech news team, which I think everyone is probably familiar with. That's what we do. We have a big reviews team. We have a policy team. We do an lot, awful lot of policy coverage. We have a features team. Then I think the two that people don't pay as much attention to, they should pay a lot more to. We have our creators team, which covers the people using the social platforms to make things. Because I think that is one of the biggest stories going. That's a story of a lot of 25-year-old entrepreneurs building new kinds of businesses on the back of Instagram. It's a huge story. Uh, and then we have our science team, which is led by Marybeth Griggs, who's an incredible uh, science editor. This is related again to, I think, the atomization of how we all consume stuff, right? The algorithms are feeding you the things from the verge that they think you want to see, and you don't see that we have this massive investment in the science coverage. And Marybeth writes a newsletter called Antivirus about vaccine development every week. That's found its audience. I don't know that we've done a good job of making it clear that we do all the things at once. And certainly we're not helped by
0: the disaggregation effect of the various social algorithms. But we're deeply invested in it. One thing I was just curious about how you're reacting to as someone who's sort of a veteran of all this stuff is the move into – substackization and a lot of the writers who might be, have been writing for one of the bigger tech publications sort of striking out as sole proprietors now, um, as someone on the other side, what do you make of all that? I it's great. I, I really do. I mean, it would be
3: nonsensical of me to look down at other journalists for being entrepreneurial. That's the thing I did. It's mm-hmm. the thing I did with my friends to make the verge. So I think it's fantastic. I think if I'm out here saying it's a tragedy that we've lost so many media outlets and journalists from the culture, yeah, if this is a way that people can get back into it and support themselves, I'm all for it. So by the time this airs, the episode of Decoder where I interviewed Chris Best, the CEO of Substack, will be out. I love talking to him. They have a lot of problems to solve. They're a new company. They're 20 people. They don't have it all figured out. I think they're working on it, though. And I again, I just come back to this theme I, I apparently have today of taking it for granted. We all think we know what the end of that story looks like. They're just putting one foot in front of the other. right? And every successful product that hits scale, if you go and talk to the people who made it, they're like, everyone thought we were already at the finish line and we were just figuring out how to put one foot in front of the other. And so, yeah, I, I hope it works out. You know, We talked a lot about Casey. Casey is one of my dearest friends. When he wanted to go to Substack, we'd made what I think is the right deal with Casey. He's still publishing on the verge. We're still going to publish his features. We gave him his email list. He's still in. I demanded that he stay in Slack with me. Uh, I talk to Casey every day. Um, I think an organization like the verge can have a lot of those relationships with other independent journalists and be the place where you want to publish features because we have an art department and a product team We have marketing capabilities. We'll pay the award submission fees. We're going to do all this stuff, and they can go be focused. Where I think the, not the end of the story, but sort of the middle of the story is going to land is, I think they're going to replace mostly trade publications in little niches, like an infinite number of niches. It's sort of the Ben Thompson framing. What I don't know, and I, I think they're going to work on it, is whether they can replace the general purpose publications, because it... If you're the sort of person who wants to consume a trade publication, the information has value to you. You're going to pay for it. And that's where every great trade publication has continued to thrive. General news, general interest publications, they have not really created that value dynamic historically.
0: So I'm curious how they solve that problem. It seems like there's a bit of like a sort of a circularity to that relationship where it's like a lot of more opinion-driven stuff kind of relies on general interest reporting as it's like prompt, you know, like, oh, there's this new thing out about Facebook. Here's what you should be thinking about Facebook. Here's like my take on it. It's increasingly how I sort of get most of this stuff just because I'm burnt out and <laughs> like things that go in my email news box are the things that I open. So I end up seeing a lot of Facebook basically through the lens of, say, Ben Thompson and Casey Newton, which is this very specific net lens and a few other technology reporters who I've talked to on this show over the years, many of whom have gone to the New York Times, um, Kevin Roos, uh, Charlie Warzel, you know, who are also basically writing a, from a pretty opinion place. So the overall tide seems like it has actually kind of amplified that opinion driven tone.
3: Yeah. I mean, I Charlie is an opinion writer. Ben and Casey have started columns that you can pay for. I think with Facebook in particular, the dynamic you're seeing, and I feel this very keenly, is Facebook refuses to really express what its values are. And either it's because they think that values that people will dislike, that they support racism and white supremacy. I don't know. They won't express their values, so that's what we think. Or they haven't gotten to the place where they feel strong enough to express them, which makes no sense to me, but they won't do it, right? They won't just come out and say racism has no place on our platform and we're big and we're going to moderate to it, or we're trying really hard and these things are getting through and our values are such that we're going to, we're actually going to do something drastic to fix it. Everything is very incremental. Everything feels very reactive. We keep hearing, stories from inside of Facebook where the employees say something is a problem, but they know it will cause a political firestorm so they don't change it. And it's really, it fundamentally comes down to, I couldn't tell you what Mark Zuckerberg's values are. And I pay as much attention to Mark Zuckerberg as anybody. I, I think most people couldn't. He sometimes says some platitudes about them, but you don't really know. And as for an organization as tightly controlled as Facebook, it is important for you to really know what his values are. I think by contrast... Tim Cook is like out there with his values all of the time. Does he always get them right? No, but he's out there with them all the time. In the absence of that, I think every reporter has said, well, here are some pretty easy values. Why don't you live up to them? And so it feels like opinion, but I think the underlying dynamic is trying to fill a vacuum in order to evaluate the policies. And the vacuum is Facebook's lack of committed values
0: it kind of comes back to what we started talking about like can you discern anything about a ceo from sort of their personal story and uh not only can i not discern anything (laughs) from mark zuckerberg i can discern that it is impossible to discern anything yeah
3: and i i just think you know zuckerberg did that that tour several years ago where he was i don't know like Holding a cow on a farm and having photos taken. Everyone thought he was running for president. And maybe he was. I really think that he just didn't know any people. Like, you know, he started that company when he was in college. He's only ever been the CEO of Facebook. His lack of life experience on the ground is a liability for him. And I don't know that you should run a communications platform at that scale without committing to hugging cows on farms three months out of the year and just like seeing what normal people are like. And like, again, I I just, I come back to this with all of the big companies. If you think about their CEOs, they all feel disaffected and disconnected in a way that the platforms they run are not. Like Twitter has changed the landscape of the culture. Jack Dorsey feels like he's a space alien. Why is that? Like that doesn't really make any sense. Susan Wojcicki, who runs YouTube, I don't know that she uses YouTube. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish I did, but I guarantee you the experience that a bunch of teenagers are having on YouTube is radically different than her conception of it. And I, when I go to ask CEOs of car companies to show up on Decoder, the first thing their PR people tell me, is like, they're a car person. They're going to love talking about cars with you. OK, when we review phones, they give us the product managers the phones, and they will spend hours talking to us about camera sensors, like in the weeds. The CEOs of these companies don't talk about their products that way. They seem like they're on a different plane, like they're talking about some other philosophical goal they have and not the actual mechanism of their products. And I think that all of the platform companies closing that gap between their their leadership experiences and the, the way they talk about the platforms and the real experiences of people, that's where you see the opinion or what feels like opinion bleed into all of the coverage because we're just trying to close that gap
0: where uh where do you go from here what are you excited about going forward i guess the show's just starting so <laughs> you got you got to at least get through one season but
3: yeah you know um so one we do have a new show in my i keep saying this it's just a forever project i'm just going to interview somebody every week for the rest of my life like that's what it, once you start a podcast there's no end date to it we don't have seasons and so i've tried to install this marker in a year. I'm going to do this podcast for a year. I'm going to interview CEOs for a year. And if I've done a good job, I should be able to construct another product for the audience that says what I learned. I have no idea that if anybody has an idea for what that product could be, there's some obvious choices, but you know, let me know. But it's like a book. Maybe it's just a poster of pithy phrases about time management. Maybe it's another website, like something, some other thing After a year, I should be able to say, here's what I learned, and here's a product that you can consume in some way that helps you learn what I learned. So that's just one way that I've been thinking about a project with infinite scope. How do I break it into chunks and say, at this marker, I should be able to do something else? And then for The Verge itself, we're going to turn 10 this year. Like, it's nuts. We're on pace right now to close 2020 and have served a billion page views, A, a billion I very much remember being zero years old and serving zero page views. So we've just hit a scale in an age now where, where as much as I want to think of us as a scrappy upstart, you know, just trying to claw some attention away from wired, which is still how I feel. I think we have to get bigger. We have to yet again, expand our influence, expand our aperture. When I talk about our creators team, that just feels really rich to me. Right? That is a generation of entrepreneurs using technology products. Uh, the joke I always tell, I think I say it now every week, every YouTuber, the inflection point of their career is a video where they say how mad they are at YouTube. It's <laughs> nuts. It's just true. But it's, every one of them does it. <laughs> yeah. There's a st- whole story in there to pull apart. And I think we can take our resources and our expertise, use that credibility to tell kind the of next generation of tech, business, culture stories. And I think Making sure we remain vibrant and fierce and just on the edge of what is actually happening is, I think, a big challenge for a site that doesn't just get the benefit of saying we're new.
0: Thank you so much for uh, this interview.
3: Hey, I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Susan Peterson, and of course, MailChimp, who helped make this show possible. You can see Longform's Best of 2020 on longform.org starting tomorrow. Check that out. We'll be back soon.